The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Without falling into pride, it's nice and I think useful to appreciate what we've done individually in terms of showing up, sticking with it, and collectively as a group, and and appreciate how harmonious it's been. It's not easy for a group of 42 or 3 people in a relatively s- small space to be doing a practice that brings up a lot and to uh, just kind of negotiate the space together. And I haven't heard <laughs> too many negative feelings that people have toward each other, so I think that's all very good. And, and truly amazing that it's gone from Monday night now to Friday night, and we're getting close to the end of the retreat. You maybe noticed I put out the uh, last day schedule will be slightly different, um, sitting on the table, and then I have it taped also to the door to the community room. Um, it's basically the same, except we'll have Qigong a little bit earlier, and uh, 10.40 to 12 noon we'll have a closing circle. Um, yeah, they'll be slightly different than some of our other closing circles, and I'll let you know when we get there. You don't need to prepare anything. <laughs> now I know you're going to prepare anyway, <laughs> even though you don't know what you should prepare for. And uh, uh, it's nice to also to recommit to uh, noble silence, and it's, it's a really delicate act, especially in this style of retreat where we do have to, we're kind of the, you know, we're the staff of the retreat and doing the retreat at the same time. And so there is places where functional speech is useful, but we really commit to, and it's hard to have a few words with someone maybe we're doing cleanup with or something like that. And then once those floodgates are open, it's just easy to keep the conversation going. And There is so much we learn about the mind when we're not engaged in interactions with other human beings or cats or dogs, right? We just see so much more because our interactions with other people is how we fill up space. And I, you know, want to make this point partly to protect the remaining hours of our retreat together, but also to find times during your life just to go quiet. You know, and shut the phone off and tell the people you live with that you're going to be quiet for a couple hours. And it's really useful to do that, to find ways to do that. And I uh, just once again want to thank the people who cooked the meals and all, the, all that people did to prepare and clean up and keep the building looking so nice and orderly. Um, really helps, I think, the practice to have a clean and functional space that we've had together. And Andre, who's agreed to edit and get the talks up on the website, and uh, I know many of you listen to Common Ground's talks up on the website, and it's people like Andre and many other volunteers who uh, make sure that those the talks here get up online, and people all around the country and world, listen. I mean, not millions, but <laughs> there are 
it's just fun to get emails from people in Australia or Europe or wherever that have been listening to the talks and really appreciating that they're up online and offered freely. Which just brings me to the last kind of announcement. And uh, a lot of you, most of you are old timers and you know how the center operates. And uh, it's just a beautiful way that we've been operating now since 1993, so 23 years, 24 years now, where we don't charge or have suggested donations. And we're just encouraging everybody, including the people who teach here and work here and volunteer here, encouraging us all to engage the community in the center in the circle of free giving and free receiving, which is a joy. Right? So that's the barometer. Is it, is it joyful, our involvement, our interactions? Even when we bring common ground to mind, does it bring up joy? And if not, then play a little bit, tease out like, or experiment how you could adjust how you're engaging the center. And, you know, as a nonprofit organization, we have the same kind of cost structures of any other sort of medium-sized nonprofit, church, or whatever. We have paid staff, as most of you know, and we support the teachers' livelihoods, and we have a building and a retreat property out in Wisconsin that we're developing. Corey is our construction manager of that project. We're starting a pretty major renovation this winter and, and early spring. So there's a lot that, uh, you know, just normal operating expenses. But the idea is to, like when you do a retreat like this, is just to find a way to participate and to give back that makes sense in your life, that really makes you happy. And nobody's looking over your shoulder. Nobody really in the office pays attention too much to how people are figuring out the circle of giving and receiving. It's actually a pretty personal thing how people figure it out. And there's really no right or wrong way to do it, except is it bringing you alive and making you happy? Or is it a burden? Does it feel like a weight, an obligation? Do you feel like you're pulling more weight than the other people in the community? Or any of those other sorts of deadening attitudes that you have? So I encourage you, when whatever you do to give back, whether it's just sending your good wishes because you don't have time or money to offer the center, you can't volunteer or don't really have any money, but however you participate, to really look at it and, and let it be a cause for happiness. Really have a real relationship with the community and the center which means you, got, you have to show up. You have to get, be interested in what it feels like. And in the same way, if we want to have a real relationship with our partner or a cat or a parent or a sibling or a kid or a friend, we actually have to show up. You know, we can't do it on automatic pilot. I mean, you can put yourself in automatic payments, but even don't let that be an excuse for not really connecting to the joy of giving. You know, so when you get your statement or whatever you get or shows up in your inbox that that monthly payment automatically went to common ground, really take it in. Like, oh yeah, I'm happily giving this money to the center. And may it set good things in motion and it 
feels good in my heart. I mean, really notice, does it feel good in the heart to have done that? So it's fine to use these modern conveniences. You know, we have the iPad in the lobby, and you can go to our website, of course. And there are many ways to sort of do that support. Or you can just put something in the bowl if you'd like. And if you have any questions about that, just let us know. You can talk to me at some point. Or the office, Gail Iverson, a longtime teacher here, former chair of our board for many years, and uh, yeah, just one of the wise ones in our community. She's also our bookkeeper, and she works on Tuesdays. So you can always call Gail on Tuesday if you have any questions about how all that works. Any questions now before we look at these questions? Thank you so much for writing them all down. Um, I'm not sure I'll get through all of them, but I did group them. So hopefully, even if I don't do the specific question you asked, um, there's others similar enough that you'll get some of the input that you've been looking, you were looking for. So there are several questions that seem in some way to have to do with views. thought I'd start there, seeing that in a way that's where we started the retreat, one of the first principles that this collection of discourses, verses, or poems that, the, that are attributed to the Buddha that we've been looking at this, these last five days the first thing, the first principle that was sort of pulled out is the Buddha's teaching on views, that clinging to views, holding to views, is a cause for suffering. And it's not necessary to live a good life. It's just the cause of suffering. So here's a question. How to reconcile staying true to one's principles in times of change versus non-fixed views. Right, and that's the important thing. It's the non-fixed views. And so values, and even I think it's okay to use the word views, they're there. <laughs> Opinions, views. You know, I'm, I'm sure the Buddha has views, but not fixed views. So we can, you know, we might have a value around non-harming, or we might have a value around justice and uh, living in a way that doesn't end up exploiting, manipulating other people, or harming other species even. But do we need to fix or hold to that view, those values? Or will they naturally arise freshly you know, when we're living our life, will the opinions and views and values we need to live a life of integrity, will they arise freshly, naturally, moment by moment, appropriately in the moment when they're needed? Wouldn't that be nice? It's like uh, somebody's really pushing your buttons and you, and you know some some stuff about this person. You know how to put them in their place. You know just what to say and how to say it. And just as they kind of do something to you, insult you in some way, and of course, the way our minds, most of our minds are conditioned, we want to hit back, right? And wouldn't it be nice if right there in that moment, having been triggered and that impulse of wanting to hit back, the value 
you know, I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings, or I undertake the value, the training to refrain from false speech or harmful speech or using speech as a weapon, right? It would be nice for that value to arise right then. And this is what we want to see is how I don't need to be, you know, fixed on this idea, I'm the person who doesn't gossip, I'm the person who doesn't hit back. We want to see how that value arises when we're intimate in the moment. Then it really allows for whatever wholesome conditioning is there, it will express itself. Now, it can't express itself if it hasn't been developed or cultivated. But the cultivation of those wholesome values doesn't come from holding to them. It comes from seeing when we act with opposite values, how we get hurt and other people get hurt. And when we act with that value, how things work out better. Right? That's how it gets embedded in the conditioning of the mind so that when the conditions are just right, the value arises. And so that's how we live without fixed views of our values. We learn to trust that the wholesome values will arise as needed. We don't have to be a person with wholesome values. We're instead a person who is aware that the, of what values, what opinions, what views are showing up. And as they show up, in a sense, we taste them. What are we tasting? We're tasting what are the underlying roots of this view or this value. Is it greed, anger, or delusion? Or is it kindness and compassion and forgiveness and patience and understanding the conditional or lawful nature, right? Karma. So that's how we learned, oh yeah, this is a view, this is an opinion, this is a value I trust. So I can let it shape how I respond in this moment. Or this is a value, a view, an opinion I don't trust because it, it tastes a lot like greed. It tastes a lot like hate or aversion or denial or delusion. These are called the wholesome and unwholesome roots. Right? And so this is how we know the difference between, I think I mentioned, I forget if it was in the large group or the, one of the small groups, about the first level of wisdom as described in the tradition is our mind, and it's not specific to sort of being a Buddhist, just anybody who's paying attention in life will eventually wake up to the fact that some intentions that I have set bad things in motion, and some intentions are wholesome, set good things in motion. Some intentions create karmic fruits that are painful, harmful. And other intentions have karmic fruits that are wholesome and wonderful and healing. And uh, so that's how we know what values and views and opinions we let shape our actions in the world or which ones need to be abandoned or sort of felt and seen honestly, but not used to sort of shape our responses, our engagement in the world. Because in a very direct and pragmatic way, we understand, well, that's not going to help. Sure, I could hit back. I could say something to that person and put them in their place. But what does that, the, the 
for a wise person, for a person who's paying attention, the important thing is, will that help me or anybody, ultimately, in any meaningful, lasting way? Sure, I could hurt the person, but is that going to make me happy, or them, or anybody? <clears throat> I mean, it, from a diluted point of view, it might seem that way, but you know, when we're even a little bit reflective, we see, no, there may be an, an immediate sort of rush, and then a, very quickly a bad taste in the mouth, like, ugh. You know, and then we need to distract yourself or tell yourself a story like they deserved it. Here's another related, uh, same sort of about views. What is the difference between views and values? Is there a right view, i.e., eating healthily, or just realizing our view, it's being known? I'm not sure. Is being known important? i.e. choosing. So I think I covered a lot of that between views and values. I mean, views are sort of a more primal way the mind frames things. And then out of views, you know, we have opinions and values. And then out of opinions and values, actions, things we think and say and do. Um, But in the way that we use the word view, it's really the more primal structure, uh, kind of conceptual structuring the mind uses to shape its reality. Like one view that some of us might have is being a victim. Like we always, not always, but often maybe in situations, that's a common way that we'll structure what's going on like, oh, poor me, or this is happening to me, this isn't fair to me. Or, you know, you might have another sort of operating view that you often, the mind often constructs and then you live inside of. And of course, the the real trick is, you know, having heard these teachings, is then now to get curious. I wonder what view is operating right now. Because views because they're so primal, they go unseen. Like in Buddhism, we talk a lot about self-view. Because it's so seemingly inherent, it's like almost always there, it goes unrecognized. That right now, I'm framing this experience. I may not be saying it explicitly, oh, there's a mark, that's me, and there's you over there. But... In all the ways my mind's framing the experience, it is creating that duality between me and everything else. But that's a view. That's a construction of the mind. Because there could be another view operating that's very different from that view. We don't have to live. That's why we spend a lot of time talking about you know, seeing this you know, any moment of experience, seeing this as a conditional and impersonal unfolding of causes and conditions, right? So an, a lawful unfolding of causes and conditions with no center. We can train, you know, cultivate that view. Then it's easier to recognize self-view because it's not that view, that sort of interdependent, conditional unfolding, impersonal unfolding.
oh, this must be self-view. It feels personal. Do I have to be a vegetarian, vegan, to fully embrace dharma? And so I put this under views because what we definitely don't have to do is be attached to being a vegetarian or a vegan, right? Take a stance. And this is important about like the precepts. I undertake like the first precept and a lot of people who align with the teachings of the Buddha and see these teachings as important guidelines for their lives, uh, regularly take the precepts as the Buddha recommends. So <clears throat> undertaking these five trainings of, like we did on the first night, refraining from harming living beings. And so as somebody reflects on that and trains with that teaching, right? that, like, that could be something you just hold in your mind like some of these other teachings we've worked with, what does non-harming look like now? What does non-harming look like now? What does it look like when I'm driving? You know? Well, probably not texting, right? Because you may not be intentionally harming other driver, drivers, but you're definitely increasing the probability of an accident, right? Which is meaning you're okay with that 5% increase or that increase probability of an accident, which would definitely harm others, because this is important. So what does it mean when you're shopping for groceries, this commitment to non-harming, or when you're eating food? And not to fall into fixed views about that, but to actually be really enlivened by the reflection. That's the hard thing, because... It's just so much simpler for our minds to settle into a fixed view. I'm, I'm not a vegetarian, and here's why. I get unhealthy. You know, my, my health doesn't hold up when I don't eat meat. Or it's really hard for me. I'm a busy person, and it's really hard for me to get good protein. You know, it takes a lot of work to be a vegan. You have to be a Bill Clinton and be able to afford, uh, you know, your own chef who will, or go out to really top-notch vegan restaurants or something like that. I mean, we have all kinds of things, but we don't want to define it. I am, I'm not. We just want to be more and more sensitive and let the choice come out of the intimacy, the understanding, really understanding the roots. So when we see something in the grocery store, we see the roots. We see everything that made that happen. We're not ignoring any of it, right? And not only do we see where it came from and the people who made it and what it, we see what it sets in motion in the economy, in our gut, you know, in terms of like what, does it, what happens when I ingest it and all the packaging, what happens to that. And we're responsible for all of it. It's almost overwhelming. It can be, right? But it's only overwhelming if you feel like you've got to do the right thing, which is self-view. So instead, we're letting the right thing arise naturally by a willingness, a a deepening or growing willingness to be sensitive to everything, to be willing to pay attention to everything. I've had a, a long kind of interesting trip with uh, vegetarianism and veganism 
Um, and for, for a long time, I think almost 20 years, I was a pretty strict, or really strict, vegetarian. And then I went and practiced at a monastery in Thailand. <laughs> it was hard to avoid eating the meat. It's funny how in these places, you know, they give, well, the, the lay people, they bring the, the monastics the best food. And for them, the lay people, the best food has a lot of meat in it. And, a lot, and so the monks are, the, the rule is you eat what you're given unless you think they brought meat because they knew you like it. Then you're not supposed to take the meat. So it's sort of a funny rule. <laughs> <coughs> Some of the Western monks I know have um, told the lay people that uh, please do not bring meat. And that's a little tricky because monks aren't supposed to tell lay people what they like, but they, but they can teach the teaching on non-harming. So it's, it's, a, it's a little bit tricky in the Buddhist tradition around uh, nuns and monks eating meat. So I I guess, again, just uh, not to fall into fixed views, but at the same time, uh, it's important to cultivate the training of non-harming to the nth degree. Not because we want to be good, but because it leads to happiness. This is the thing, you know, it's like it can be such a burden to sort of only buy products that have been responsibly sourced and... I mean, we can become so neurotic about doing everything right and suffer and make people around us suffer, you know, because then we're going to want to talk endlessly about why they shouldn't have bought that shirt or shouldn't be eating that. So how can we cultivate uh, this training in non-harming in a way that makes our life beautiful and makes those around us delighted in being around us, right? And we're not a bother to other people. That's really the interesting question. And the one thing I think I can say is avoiding it is not the way. Avoiding the issue of non-harming and committing to non-harming, like because it's complicated or because the path isn't laid out and explained, this is how you do it, this is the secret way to negotiate what kind of clothes you buy, what kind of food you buy. There's no way. It's not explained. We sort of find it moment by moment due to our sincerity in undertaking the training to refrain from harming living beings. Because it's pretty clear that there's enough suffering in the world. right? So that motivation not to add to suffering, it is one of the most natural things. Like for any human being that's even slightly awake and sensitive, it's relatively easy for that human being to connect with, I'm interested in this training of not adding to suffering. I'm interested in that. Because I know what suffering is like, and I know in the way that it is for me, it is for you. So, yeah, I'm going to undertake the training to refrain from, from harming living beings because I, I know what that's like. And, uh, and then the key, like I said, is to see how that is a cause for happiness, not a cause for getting tight, a cause for happiness. 
how does Buddhism deal with soul? Well, again, it's like uh, we don't want to have a fixed view, and, and especially about these things that we can't touch. I mean, we may, people may think that they, they can touch their soul or they know what the soul is, but you know, generally, uh, it's sort of an amorphous thing, this word soul. In a Buddhist context, we might talk about the conditioned mind because there is some underlying force here. Like sometimes people are even like using the phrase sometimes mind stream to talk about the conditioned mind, the force of habit, the momentum of latent tendencies in my heart and mind. And then, you know, some people, I mean, I certainly don't know, and I think it's good to keep an open mind, but not to definitely not to have any fixed views around rebirth. But the idea then, at the time of death, is the force of that, whether you call it a mind stream or unfinished business or the momentum of those latent tendencies, that's what would somehow, some magical or mysterious way, take rebirth, find a womb, to continue to allow the continuation of that momentum of those latent tendencies, conditioned tendencies in the mind. So I think it's totally fine to call that soul, if you want, as long as you understand that that mind stream, all of that momentum of of, uh, habit, of conditioned habit, that there's no center to it. There's like a lot of, Forces that we don't quite understand how, like, my tendency to be defensive, like, where is that? How is that stored? That's a mystery, isn't it? And there's, you know, there's different, in, in the Buddhist, the vast Buddhist lineages, there are different articulations of, like, that storehouse that holds, you know, those latent tendencies. But clearly there are latent tendencies. And some, you know, you talk to parents who have had several children, and they'll say without a doubt, like, this one came in with these latent tendencies, and this one came in with these other latent tendencies. And, you know, they were sort of, I saw it pretty early on and had nothing to do with their environment. So they came with these latent tendencies. I mean, again, it's just to keep an open mind about it. So... Yeah, I think it makes sense that there is some force, and some people might call it personality, but it's, these are conditioned tendencies. And when we examine them carefully in our own mind, in our own heart, we don't find that they're packaged together. Like these different tendencies, they overlap, they affect one another, but they're just like different forces. In the same way, when weather comes blowing in to the Twin Cities, you know, we kind of talk about weather as one thing. But all the different elements of that weather, the different rivulets of wind, you know, they're kind of the same thing. They're kind of tied together, but they're kind of independent too. And the rain and the wind and the clouds. So... Sure, we can kind of stand back and say, that's a soul, that's a self. But when we really deconstruct it, we see there are these different interdependent patterns, and there really isn't a center to 
the weather that's blowing in or the force of my habit energies, whether they're in this life or in some transition to rebirth in the next life. So that's my take on soul. So the next general category had to do with difficult emotions and energy experiences. Lots of comments and questions here. How does our practice relate to ongoing feelings of discomfort, feelings which may be interpreted to suggest an action, like changing jobs? Well, I think it's okay to, you know, when we're, when there's a repeated visitor showing up in our practice, so when the mind is quieter and more, more imbalanced, more sensitive, and you recognize a visitor, some emotional state, some energetic state is there again, some knot, um, tight, tightness in the more subtle energy of our body. I think it's appropriate to sort of be interested, right? I mean, that's our practice, being intimate, being interested. Not so much to tell a story, because that's, we tend to rush to something superficial. Oh, I'm feeling this because of that. And, I mean, who knows? Maybe sometimes we'll guess right, and somehow, karmically, that tension we're feeling, that difficult emotion we're feeling is somehow related to something that we've pointed to, some event in our life, maybe even long ago, maybe last week. But a lot of times we won't know, we won't have any intuition, but the important thing is we don't need to know where it came from. All we need to do is get interested in what it is now, because whatever it came from this is what's left, right? And so in terms of what this has to teach me, the first and foremost thing it has to teach us is to not add, to not keep feeding it. Whatever this difficult experience is, you know, it's like they say about training doctors, to do no harm, you know? So it's the same thing. It's like, how can I be with this? How can I include this? Because it's showing up uninvited. It's here. It's part of my life. How can I include this without it being this vortex that basically gets fed and becomes a bigger and bigger pattern problem, a bigger karmic knot, until it can overwhelm us? I'm sure you've had, this is not an uncommon experience in meditation where something seemingly insignificant, but you know, the mind, it's like you're picking on a scab and all of a sudden you got a serious problem. And it's a little bit like that with some of these little difficult places that show up in our practice. We get a little obsessed and then it also gets amplified, like if the mind is quiet or concentrated and we look at this thing and we really look at it, well, it gets as big as the universe not because it's that big, but because that's all we're looking at. So the enormity of some energetic experience 
it can take on monstrous proportions because of the fixedness or the obsessiveness of the mind. And then it seems like the story we tell ourselves is this is unworkable. I was probably, you know, and we could make up a story about some terrible thing that must have happened for this to be arising. And what's really important to notice is how it goes away. Like, all of a sudden you have a fantasy about going snowboarding in Utah. And, and you're there for 10 minutes, and you realize that this monster that was eating you up, this difficult thing you were working with and it's been obsessing you for hours, is like nowhere to be seen. But when you were in it, it was like life and death. And then it's gone. That's really important because it reminds us how much these things can be constructed. So a lot, like in terms of intuiting if there's a message in some of these things, it would be something that arises organically, repeatedly, some kind of clarity. Oh, I really need to talk to this person. I need to make amends with this person. And then you just... You have a don't know mind. That may be true, it may not be true. But I'll put it on the shelf and I'll continue my practice. And then it's like, like there's some intuition coming out of some, something that's just pain in the body, let's say. And there's some intuition and, and it repeats itself. And then you shouldn't just blindly think that that's right. Then you should apply some rational thoughts. Right? So you, you receive the intuition the message has been delivered a number of times, and then you think it through, right? Now, with a more rational, logical mind. Okay, what happened? You know, what do I remember happening? How did, how did we leave it? What might I do or say? Oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. So then you have both the rational mind and the intuitive mind in cahoots, right? And then you look for the right time, the right place, the right attitude, to do whatever, you know, in this case, to give the example of changing jobs, you know, leaving your job or making amends or whatever it might be. It just makes sense, right, to be thoughtful and to know that we're always operating with uncertainty. We don't, we pretend we know, oh yeah, I've got to do this because we don't like uncertainty. But as practitioners, we're learning to be okay with uncertainty, like, I've had this intuitive feeling. I've thought it through. I've checked out my motivation. feels pretty clean. So I'm going to sort of take a step towards expressing, you know, or following through with this, you know, intuition. And even then, we keep tracking like, oh, that was a mistake, you know. Because that really informs the next time we have intuition, Remember that other time? Because lots of times, you know, some people, they shouldn't be trusting their intuition because there's something masking it. It's like there's something happening that they're not seeing. And it masquerades as intuition. But they haven't really clarified what's going on yet. And so in those cases, we develop a really healthy suspicion about intuition. Like, Honey, I don't trust you. You know, there's a lot moving, and clearly I'm not feeling, seeing it all. 
So I'm putting everything on suspension until there's more clarity. And we cycle through times when our intuition can be really useful and clear, and other times when it's not that useful, and we're sort of driving in the dark. And that's just how it is. You know, and those times, we're much, we're much more sort of holding back until the messages are really clear. And, then, and other times, it's like, boom, boom, boom. We know just what to say. We're, we're not even thinking things through. We're just, and it, it can be very delightful when it works. Right? And the only way is if we're, we continue to track, like, okay, good intuition, good intuition, good intuition. You know what? The intuition isn't so good today. So maybe I won't fly, you know, what's the phrase we use when someone is just fly? Hmm? Yeah, flying off the seat of your pants, yeah. I've just discovered that true contentment, and then in parentheses, freedom, is without fear. Fearful thoughts may come, but when you are Fearful thoughts may come, but when you are balanced, you don't believe them. I'm excited about this insight. Can you talk about this? Yeah, when the mind... See, the thing about contentment, or even just samadhi, which has flavors of contentment, by definition, samadhi means there's a unified mind. The mind has gathered its energies. It's not dissipating, the mind is not dissipating its energies through the activity of greed and fear and aversion and other kind of afflictive emotions. So there's a sense of wholeness, and that wholeness is pleasant, which gives the mind some immunity. It feels content with how it feels, so I'm not desperate to find a good feeling in my experience because I'm already feeling good. I'm feeling whole, collected, grounded, centered, peaceful, loving, right? So these are words that you could use to describe samadhi, just a mind that has come into balance. And then it gives us immunity to afflictive states. And then when afflictive states arise, from the point of view of samadhi, it's so clear that that's an unwholesome state, right? Because the contrast between the vibration of some habit of fear next to a mind, a heart that's established in samadhi, we really, the mind really understands that, oh, honey, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't identify. Don't follow that. Because that hurts. It's really that simple. So being in samadhi is the ultimate protection. When we're in that balanced state and we're feeling some sense of wholeness and unity, collectedness, groundedness, peacefulness, kind of a basic goodness or love, then it's less, much less likely that someone can draw us or an event circumstance can draw us into negative activity or unwholesome activity because it will really stand out. You know, we walk into a room and some of our good friends are gossiping. 
And even though it may be sort of behavior that we participate in from time to time, because we're in that more beautiful state, it's like, I'm not going to have anything to do with this. You know, I'm not going to participate in this, or I might even skillfully say something, but I'm not going to get sucked in because it's like, I don't want to lose this wise, kind, stable presence. And when I get sucked into that, they can't coexist. And same thing with a lot of lust for like a new car or a new this or a new that. It's like, yeah, there's that interesting catalog, maybe your favorite catalog. It's come in the mail, but you're not interested. This is the thing about like some of you who have touched deeper states of concentration, it's like you don't want to even move. Like at the end of the set, the bell rings. You don't want to move. You don't want to open your eyes. Because you're so content. I'm not saying we can live this way, but it, in this exaggerated form, it really gives you a sense why the mind is protected. Because the mind's not dependent on sense experience. Because it feels so good. So you can draw somebody out. It's interesting, some of the teachers who have really good samadhi. And uh, you, know, you can just sense, like they're just sitting there and they're in a really nice place. You know? And you ask them a question about practice. You know? And it's like, I don't really want to leave that place, but you know, <laughs> it's their job. And they kind of they come out. You know, they come out. But see... They don't have any emotional need. Like they're not trying to impress you. They have no need except they see you're a suffering being or you're a sincere person and they connect to that. And that is sort of, it draws something out of them. And when they're done, they go right back to that peaceful place. And so that, that's sort of an aspiration to sort of now, you take that person and you expose them to all the suffering in the world and you have a saint in action, right? Because the default is always to go to zero, to that collected state, until they see suffering and then they naturally respond because it moves the heart. They see somebody suffering and they see the contrast between what's possible and what's happening. And it breaks the heart open. It's just like compassion isn't something somebody does. It's a natural movement. Oh, honey, it does not have to be that way. If there's something I can do, I'm going to do it. If there's something I can say, I'm going to say it. Are there different types of desire that could be viewed differently? For example, a knowing type desire of the soul. Yeah, I think there are different types of desires. Some are coming from diluted frames or diluted views, and some are coming from wiser framing of what's going on, like the desire to come and do the year-end retreat versus, you know, the desire to have somebody notice my really nice sweater that I'm wearing or, you know, whatever it might be, my nice meditation shawl or how straight I sit. Like some desires are coming from a pretty superficial place, driven by greediness or fear or one of the afflictive emotions. 
And other desires are coming from a much more integrated place, like the desire for the heart to be free or the desire to live in a way that doesn't cause suffering or the desire to support the alleviation of suffering for all beings. These kinds of desires are quite beautiful. And, you know, they, uh, they don't take us toward afflictive states. They take us away from afflictive states. I think a lot of people who have children, I mean, I know it can be afflictive, but uh, one of the real joys, I think surprising joys, whether you're an activist or a parent or somebody who's really given their life away in some way, is that you're, uh, you found a way to, at least to some degree, step outside of your self-obsessions because you found something bigger than that and more important than that, like this person needs to be fed, you know, this person needs to be dressed, they need to be taken care of, or this issue is calling my attention, I care about it. If I don't do it, nobody will do it. I'm going to do it. And we, in a sense, step outside. Now, it's often, you know, our children can be just extensions of our own ego. But, you know, that's a less common than, well, like it or not, the kid's here. And they need somebody to take care of them. And I'm the one. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to step up. Or, like it or not, I'm the one who sees the world going to hell. You know, for some reason, people aren't noticing that this is happening, that there is this injustice, you know, that we have this many millions of people of color in prison, way out of proportion. That's not right. i got to do something about it. So we show up, you know, and we navigate our way because we care, because... It feels good, right, to step out of our bubble and do things that feel that kind of leave a, a, an enlivened state. Even little things like when you give, like when and I have been, when we see people asking for money on the street corners, you know, we've been giving these little cliff bars um, to them, and you know, it's just a little thing. But it, it feels good to stop and have a human connection with these folks and offer them something that they seem willing to receive. And as opposed to the fear and the other kinds of qualities that get reinforced when I don't, I just drive by. And I'm just talking about my own experience with that. Somebody put a quote from Dhamma Everywhere, um, Saida Utejaniya's book that was out on the bench. And the quote is, no experience out there is better than the present experience. Please explain. What about physically or emotionally threatening experiences? Yeah, but no experience out there is better than the present experience. I think what Saida is saying is that every experience 
physically threatening, emotionally threatening experiences, really beautiful experiences, ultimately, or not ultimately, just straightforwardly, every experience is something being known. Something is being known. Something is being known. Now, it's not that some experiences aren't physically or emotionally threatening or dangerous and other experiences are really safe and wonderful. But as practitioners, our first and foremost responsibility is to realize it's just something being known. And don't worry about the response. Nature knows how to respond. If there's a saber-toothed tiger tracking us down, the wisdom of the mind knows this is just what's next. It's just something being known. But the, what is it called, the limbic system in the mind? or what Limbic? Yeah, that's the more reptilian brain, right? Yeah, it knows what to do. <laughs> you know, the blood will go to the muscles, you know, and you're, you'll do something. You know, it may not be enough, but... <laughs> but the more refined mind, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, not the limbic end of the spectrum, but the other end... Its job is to know something is being known. There's a lot of freedom in that. So that's why we're cultivating it because we're, we're learning not to only live out of the reptilian brain. And we're learning how to have a much more refined understanding. It's always this simple. Something is being known. Something is being known. And it really opens the mind to what we call the unconditioned or the experience of freedom when we realize that. But it doesn't change the fact that we're being hunted by a saber-toothed tiger or that we have cancer or that somebody's abusing us. It doesn't change that. It just helps the mind be skillful in that situation. It minimizes the suffering. It doesn't minimize the physical and maybe even to some degree emotional trauma, but it liberates the mind from spiritual trauma And I know it's hard to believe that terrible things could, on on the deepest level, not be a problem. But I I highly encourage you to keep your mind open that the dying process cannot be a problem. It doesn't have to be a problem. Loss, terrible loss, as painful as it will be, doesn't have that pain of loss, doesn't have to be a personal problem. Insult doesn't have to be a personal problem. It certainly can be and often will be a personal problem given how our mind is conditioned. But we want to stay open. We want to stay open to other beings suffering and our wholehearted response without our heart being burdened by the very real suffering in the world. Just because beings are suffering does that mean we should suffer? We should be interested in responding, not like, I'll feel guilty if I'm not suffering. Like People really react when you say things like that because they think it's irresponsible to not be suffering when other people are suffering. But what really is required is doing something that might be helpful. It's not about suffering, it's about responding with compassion. And when you look at saints, people who seem to know something, they don't seem like they're suffering. 
And the Dalai Lama is a good example. And I mean, it's not that I or anybody here probably has a real close or intimate relationship with him, but even from a distance, you know, here's somebody who's got a complicated life and his people that he's responsible for in all kinds of ways have been experiencing this terrible genocide for decades now. But he seems capable of real joy, contagious joy, without being disconnected from his responsibilities and duties that he has in his life. It's kind of impressive being around people like that. And I'm sure you have your own examples. You know, it doesn't have to be a superstar figure. It could be just somebody you know who's dealt with cancer in a way that just is very inspiring or dealt with the loss of a loved one in a way that was really inspiring. This is not that uncommon, you know, to have little windows into people being with difficult experience but not suffering. Not continue, you know, maybe in moments, but having moments when they're really experiencing an enlivened and even joyful state in the midst of a difficult life circumstance. So I think I'll leave it here. And uh, maybe at the end of the 8 o'clock sit, I'll answer a few more questions. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Checking out the availability of a compassionate intimacy with the way it is now in the body and mind. Not afraid to be real with the way it is. Thanks for listening, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.